0: It was Matthew Henry who said, You may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. Prayer is one of those essential elements of the Christian life. Over and over and over again, we're encouraged to pray. We're encouraged to pray for everyone and everything. You're told, do not worry. But do what? Pray. Jesus said, you are to pray for your enemies. Pray for those who don't like you, who don't love you, who don't show you love. You are to pray for your neighbors, your friends, your family members. You are to pray for kings and governors and all those in authority. You are to pray in secret. You are to pray to avoid temptation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, Paul says, you are to pray without ceasing, unending, continually, praying. Your life should be marked by incessant and continual prayer. And I could spend, we could spend several sermons going through all of the Bible and all the places where the Bible tells you you must pray. And those would be worthwhile endeavors and it would probably mean most of us would leave here feeling very weak and frail. Because I think if we're honest, all of us would look at our prayer life and look at what Scripture says about prayer, and all of us would say, my prayer life is nothing of what it should be. On the day of my death, when I'm lying on my deathbed, I am not going to look back on my life and say, you know, that period of time I prayed just too much. No one has ever said, I prayed too much during that period of time. We all realize that we fail so often to pray as we should And I don't think I need to tell Christians you're not praying enough. I think you already realize you need to pray more. And the prayers that you have oftentimes feel so meager and weak. So this morning, my goal is not to come to give you a rebuke and try to encourage you through admonition. My goal this morning is to give you some encouragement to remind you of some of the key truths of the Bible about prayer and what prayer is and what it means and why you should be going to pray and why prayer should mark your life. So this morning, I'm going to give you three encouragements to pray. Three encouragements to pray. Let's look at the first encouragement. Let's just jump right in here. The first encouragement to pray. Christ purchased your privilege. Prayer is a privilege. And that privilege was purchased for you by Christ. Prayer is a means of drawing near to God. It's fellowshipping with God. When you speak to God, you are fellowshipping with Him. You are communing with God. Think about the things that you do in prayer. In prayer, you tell Him your needs. You go to Him and you submit requests and you tell Him what you need and what's missing. You tell him your interests, what you would like. You tell him your concerns. You tell him about the things that are bothering you. You go to him for help in a time of trouble. When things aren't going well, you go to him and you ask him to help you. When you're mourning and you're sad, you go to him and ask him for comfort. When you're in pain, you go and you call upon him to give you relief. In prayer you go and you praise him for his blessing, you thank him for his provision. These are all elements of prayer. And they are all means of fellowshipping. It's what we do every day when we come together and we fellowship with one another. We encourage one another, we try to meet each other's needs. We try to lift each other up. If someone is hurting, we're hurting with them. If someone is joyful and they're celebrating, we celebrate with them. Prayer is a form of fellowship. It's fellowship not with each other, but it's fellowship with God. It's drawing near to God. It's being able to run to Him whenever you need Him and to call upon Him whenever you want. But it's not something that you innately have the ability to do. Man, by his very nature, cannot just run to a holy God whenever he wants. Sinners cannot dwell in the presence of God. They cannot draw near to God on their own. We're separated from Him because of our sin. It's our sin that blocks our fellowship with God. It's our sin nature that blocks our ability to pray as we ought. And this separation is wonderfully illustrated in the Old Testament. This separation between you and God is wonderfully illustrated. When Israel came out of Egypt, God selected them to be His people. And he draws them out of Egypt. He takes them into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he gives them the law. The law wasn't the means of how they would become God's people. It's how they were to behave as God's people. It was instructions on how they were to fellowship with God. These instructions were very strict and very detailed. God has a specific way he wants to be worshipped. He wants you to fellowship with him. But I want you to note that in the first five books of the Bible, he never says, come close. He doesn't turn to the people of Israel and say, come near me, get as close as you would like. Fellowship with me anytime you want, I'm your father. The instructions in the law were very clear. He said to the people, not come close, but stay back when he was on Mount Sinai. Did he welcome all the people up to the top of the mountain? No, Exodus 19, 12, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Stay back. I am a holy God. Don't you dare come uninvited. Don't think that you can just waltz into the presence of Yahweh anytime you want and fellowship him Anytime you want, stay back. Then they built the tabernacle. Tent in the middle of the wilderness where God resided inside the tent. And if someone wanted to go in the tabernacle, first you had to be a part of the, the priests. But even when the priest went into the tabernacle, he couldn't go in and just do whatever he wanted. He had specific tasks. If you're going to be in the presence of God, this is what you must do. And you are not permitted to do anything other than the task he has assigned you. And then when you're done, get out. No longer in my presence. And if you remember, in the tabernacle, there were no chairs. There were no cushions to sit down on. There were no beds to lay down on. There was no place to lounge around and hang out for a while. You get in there, you get done what you need to do, and then you get out. You're not allowed to stay. The two sons of Aaron... Nadab and Abihu ignored these rules. And they waltzed into the presence of Yahweh. They offered strange fire. Leviticus 10 verse 2. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. They went into fellowship with God and do it their way. And God executed them. Aaron the high priest watched his two sons violate this rule of God. And he watched his two sons be... Executed. And what's amazing is the very next verse, verse 3, he says, So Aaron therefore kept silent. He knew this was a just thing to do. He knew his sons made a terrible mistake. They should have been terrified to enter into the presence of a holy God. It should have scared them to death. I'm going to the presence of a holy God, I'm going to draw near to a holy God, and I'm a sinner. They should have been shaking with fear at the prospect. Then there comes the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the day when, every, when the high priest would go into the tabernacle and he would offer blood for the people of Israel to cleanse them of their sins. And right when God is about to tell them how to do this, when he tells Aaron, hey, you're about, you, know, you need to go into the Holy of Holies and you need to offer a sacrifice for the people, you don't want to know what he starts it off with? He starts it off with a reminder. Leviticus 16 is the chapter that discusses it. He starts the chapter this way. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. Aaron, you're about to go into the tabernacle to worship. Oh, remember, your two sons went in there and died. Entering the presence of Yahweh for worship is serious business. Entering into his presence in prayer is serious business. And it's not business that you can do on your own. Because you and I are both sinners. We have violated his perfect and infinite law. And we cannot just waltz into the presence of a holy God. We cannot have fellowship with a God that is perfectly holy and perfectly just. And all the worship that we give is a form of entering into his presence. This morning, you have spiritually entered into his presence. If you are a believer, you have spiritually entered into his presence in worship. Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Thanksgiving and praise are elements of worship. They're also elements of prayer. And here he says, doing that is entering into his gates, entering into his courts. That's drawing near to God. In the New Testament, prayer is related to entering into his presence, drawing near. Hebrews 4, 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's describing the priesthood of Christ. Therefore, on the basis of what Christ has done, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Throne is a symbol of authority, it's a symbol of power, and you can draw near to the throne of grace, the throne where grace is dispensed. For what purpose? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do you find grace and help in time of need? You go to him in prayer. Here the command is not stay back. Here the command is not keep your distance. There's no threat of drawing too close. There's no threat if you enter in uninvited. Here we have an open invitation. Come on. Draw near. Seek after the grace that you need. Seek after help whenever you need it. Whenever you're in distress, call upon me. What changed? Grab your Bibles. Go over to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, his argument is that the Levitical priesthood that offered these sacrifices and all of its priests could never make you acceptable to God. That the repetition of the sacrifices is proof that those sacrifices could not purify. That they were merely signs waiting for the one true sacrifice to come around. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 he says every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The reason they had to go and offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement every single year, you know what the high priest would do? He would go into the Holy of the Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is and he would sprinkle blood. And the next year when he went into the Holy of Holies to do the same thing again, do you know what he saw? He saw the blood from last year. Proof that it didn't purify them. It didn't make them acceptable to God. It did not take away their sin. There are so-called Christian religions today that offer sacrifices. It's called Roman Catholicism. And they have priests to offer sacrifices. And they tell you it is propitiatory. That is, it is to satisfy the wrath of God. This is how you cleanse your sins in the Catholic Church. You offer sacrifices. Over and over and over and over again, keep offering the sacrifice. Hebrews ten eleven says they do that because their sacrifices don't work. They cannot purify you. Verse 12. But he, speaking of Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He offered one sacrifice, he offered it one single time, and then he did what no priest in history was ever allowed to do. He sat down in the temple. Work complete. Nothing left to do. Everyone who this sacrifice was made for is now pure, is now perfected. And now you are forever welcome into the presence of God. As a result of Christ's perfect sacrifice, you have been forever perfected. Perfected for all time. There will never be a day, if you are a believer, that you are not perfect in the eyes of God. where you are not welcome in His presence. Hebrews 10, verse 17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. No more offerings necessary. You don't have to kill a bull or a goat. You don't have to sacrifice anything to be perfected in Christ... All who are in Christ are now perfect in the eyes of God. Because when God looks at you, he does not see your sin-stained life. Your sin is imputed, is credited to Christ. Christ pays for the sin and he credits to you his righteousness. He gives you credit for his perfect life. So when God the Father looks upon the sinner, he does not see your sin-stained life. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now you really are perfect in his eyes. Go to verse 19. Hebrews 10 verse 19. Therefore, on the basis of what Christ has done, on the basis of everything he's just said, therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy place the place where only one priest was allowed to go, no one in the nation of Israel was allowed to be, you now have access. You now have the ability to go into the holy place, to draw near to God, to worship Him, to pray to Him, to find fellowship, to receive grace and mercy in a time of need. He says you have confidence. Not fear, not timidity, confidence. This is also not smug arrogance. This is not that self-centered pride that looks at myself and says, man, I'm such a good guy. God would be happy to have me around him. That's not what he's referring to. It's not self-based confidence. It's not confidence in me. This confidence also doesn't lead to praying to God in a flippant, condescending manner that turns God into your personal bellhop. Or speaks to God like he's your buddy down the street. It's not the absence of reverence. That's not what he's referring to. It's not the absence of reverence, but the recognition of Yahweh's acceptance. It's the recognition that I am now permitted to be here. I am now allowed to be in your presence. I am welcome here. He wants me to be here. That Yahweh is pleased to hear from you. That he is pleased to have you there. And he invites you to come, to draw near. You're not a stranger. Invited into somebody else's home to be a visitor every now and then, and then leave. Through Christ, you have been adopted. You are sons of God, children of God. And when he invites you in, he invites you into the home of your heavenly father. And he does so on the basis of what Christ has done for you. I have a question. Have you ever done this? Have you ever sinned? You knew you sinned? And it was really tearing you apart? By the way, if sin tears you apart emotionally, that's a good sign, not a bad one. But the sin was really tearing you up? And you knew you should go pray? And then you had this thought. I, I can't go to God right now. I can't go near Him. Look what I did. Look at my sin. Do Do you know what I've done? He doesn't want to hear from me right now. I need to go earn some credit back first. I need to go have some good behavior. Then he'll want to hear from me. That's not the gospel. This is why we want to remind you of the gospel all the time. Because the gospel says you have acceptance with God, not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what he has done. And that means your sin should never be a hindrance to your prayer life. When you sin, yes, you need to repent. Yes, you need to confess it. But please, run back to Christ in prayer. Christ purchased your privilege. You are now welcome in the throne of God. You are welcome to approach him. Our confidence is not in us. Hebrews 10, verse 19 again, we have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. If I went to the White House today and I walk up to the guard at the shack in front, the secret service guard there, and I said, um, <clears throat> my name is Frank Gutting and I'm here to see the president. You know what the Secret Service agent would do? What some of you just did. Laugh. And then he would tell me to go home. I don't have the credentials to go there. That's a bubble I am not allowed to pop. I don't have the right to go there. I'm not welcome there. The president is out of my league, you might say. But if I had a different job, Let's say if I was a Secret Service agent, and I had credentials and a badge, and I walked up and I said, I'm Agent Frank Gutting. I need to see the president. I might actually get in. Because now I have the credentials. You, in and of yourself, have, do not have the credentials to go to God. You have no right. You have no access You need the right credentials. And here in Hebrews 10, 19, he says, it's not your works, it's not your merit, it's not your performance this week. What credentials will get you an audience with the King of kings and the Lord of lords? The blood of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness, his perfect life, his death that atoned for all of your sin. You have the ability to go to God, to fellowship with Him, to pray to Him, to draw near to Him because of one thing, and it's not actually a thing, it's a person, because of Jesus Christ. He purchased your privilege. Your sin is no longer a barrier. It's no longer a hindrance to your ability to pray. You and I can't get an audience with the president There are men in the world who will pay tens of thousands of dollars just to have a few fleeting moments with the president, and after they pay all that money, they still have no guarantee he's actually going to listen to what they have to say. But, while you can't see the president, you do have access, and you do have the ability to have an audience with the creator of the universe, to speak to your creator, to speak to God. Not for a few moments where he's distracted and unconcerned about you. Only for you to be ushered out again and told you need to leave now. Christ purchased your privilege of entering into the presence of God. Submitting your prayers, your fears, your needs, your wants, your desires, your thanks, your praise. And to dwell with him as long as you would like. And in the New Testament, the Bible says you are to do it unceasingly. At all times. The next time your sinful heart shouts at you, you can't go to him. You have no right to go to him. You can't speak to him now. He doesn't want to hear from you. Just remember, Christ purchased your privilege. Your right to go to him in prayer is not based on you. And when you've sinned, it's the perfect time to run to Christ. It's the perfect time to go to the throne of grace and plead for mercy and help. That's the time where you need to pray more than ever before. And here's the cool part. Because of Christ, not only are you permitted to go in, but you will be welcomed back. He will welcome you with open arms. He never turns away a repentant believer. You will find the grace and the mercy. No sin can keep you from fellowshipping with Him in prayer. Why should you pray more? Because Christ purchased your privilege. It's a privilege that only Christians have. That's the first encouragement to pray. Christ purchased your privilege. The second encouragement to pray. The Spirit helps you pray. The Spirit helps you pray. This is, um, I think this is an obvious question, but have you ever struggled in prayer? Have you ever gone to pray and it just didn't seem to work very well? I mean, you're there, you're trying but you feel like your prayers are just completely inadequate. You stutter, you stammer. You oftentimes don't know what to say. You know what you want to say, but you just can't seem to get it out. Your mind goes blank. You have all these desires, needs, and wants, but no matter what you do, you just can't seem to express them. And so you try to express it a different way, and you end up just saying the same thing you just said a minute ago. And then you just start repeating yourself over and over again. And it's because you realize that even though I'm trying to say it, I'm just not expressing what's really in my heart. And then we get, we feel like we're kind of dejected and like, I'm not very good at this, I might as well stop. I might as well just give up. And so you leave the prayer room. Wherever you're at when you're praying, you just give up on prayer. Feeling like you never got your request out, you never got your message to them, and your prayers just bounced off the ceiling. It was just a complete waste of time. Turn over to Romans 8. I know pastors preaching through Romans, and I'm not going to steal his thunder. We're just looking at two verses. Romans 8. The Word of God has some encouragement for you on prayer, and I'm using this passage because it is the best passage for this issue. It is the absolute best. What's the encouragement? The Spirit helps you pray. When a believer goes to pray... The Spirit shows up, comes alongside of you, and helps you pray. Look at Romans 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Weaknesses. We all have weakness. Here, weakness refers to a human limitation. It's an area where you lack the strength or the ability to do something. And because of your sinful nature, because of our nature has been affected by sin, we all have a lot of weaknesses. And those weaknesses are evidence in our prayer life. You are unable to pray rightly. And that's what Paul says. You, you have trouble praying. And then he says, and the Spirit helps. I looked up that word help. You know what it means? It means to help. Luke 10, verse 40, Martha tells Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. It describes one person coming alongside another person and helping. That's what it means. One lexicon said it refers to taking a share in, to help in bearing. The Spirit doesn't do the work for you. You can't say, well, I'm just going to avoid prayer and the Spirit will do it for me. No, 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 no. The Spirit helps you when you pray. John Bunyan, the Puritan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said there is no man nor church in the world that can come to God in prayer but by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to your aid. So what are some of these weaknesses? What are some weaknesses? Well, the first one, This isn't an exhaustive list. This is just some examples. First one is wrong desires. You go into prayer and you start asking for things that you really shouldn't be asking for. James 4, verse 3 you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Before I was a believer, there was a time where um, I have hazel eyes, but my eyes would turn green because I just wanted to be rich. That's what I wanted. And my eyes had dollar signs in them. Looking back, I am so thankful the Lord did not give me what I wanted. That would have destroyed my soul. To pray with wrong motives is to waste time in prayer. Another weakness, a lack of focus. Being easily distracted. It never fails. You go, you're like, I'm going to commit, I'm going to pray, and I'm not going to be distracted. And as soon as you get ready to pray ding, phone, doorbell. Or your mind just does what the sinful mind does. And you go to pray and then you remember, oh, there was that thing I was supposed to do. I need to go do that. Or it goes and starts thinking about some other problem that has nothing to do with what you're there to pray for. And you just can't get your mind to focus on prayer. And then when you start praying, your mind starts running in circles and going all over the place and you can't seem to get your thoughts focused on one thing. That's a weakness. It's it's called the noetic effect of the fall. It's the result of a sinful nature that has diminished your ability to focus and to think. Another weakness. We have a lack of knowledge. This isn't a lack of knowledge of what to do because prayer is just speaking. It's a lack of knowledge of what we need. I don't know what my needs are. I may have a need today at 7 p.m., that I have no clue about right now. Which means I can't pray for it. I can't ask God to provide it. I don't know what it is. Not only do I not know what I'll need, but I don't know how my decisions are going to affect me in 20 years. I don't know what I'm going to need in 20 years. I don't know what my situation's going to be in 20 years. So how do I pray? Well, if that's true of my life, How am I supposed to know the needs of my brothers and sisters in the church? How am I supposed to pray for every person in the church when I don't know every single one of their needs? Isn't it nice that we have a Holy Spirit who's omniscient and He aids us in prayer? Verse 27, He says, The Spirit knows the heart of the Spirit. He knows everything. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about my life. He knows everything about my future. He knows every need that I have. He knows you perfectly. He says the numbers, the hairs on your head are numbered. He's counted your days. He knows every detail, every facet of your life. From the moment you were born to the moment you will die, He knows everything. We don't know what we need. We don't know what others need. But the Spirit does. That's another weakness. We don't know what we need. Last weakness I'll give you. Prayer is learned. You have to learn how to pray. Luke 11, the disciples come to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. They were acknowledging their own weakness. And by the way, they had just watched him pray. There's nothing that'll make you realize how weak your prayers are until you sit there and listen to Christ pray. Prayer is learned. I'll compare it this way. Um, Imagine a two-year-old just learning how to speak. And the two-year-old comes to her mom or her dad, and she knows what she wants, she knows what she needs. It just, it comes out, but it's not English when it comes out. And if it is English, it's broken, the words are mispronounced, the sentences are all broken up. they're trying to express their thoughts they just don't know how they have to learn and the same is true when we go and talk to god we have to learn how to pray and paul affirms this romans 8 verse 26 again for we do not know how to pray as we should you don't know how to pray neither do i And it's at this point that I would say, have you ever stopped at the beginning of your prayer and acknowledged your weakness here? Have you ever started your prayer with, Lord, I'm supposed to pray to you, but I know I don't know how. I haven't figured this out yet. And so I'm going to come to you like a two-year-old, stuttering and stammering, and I'm just going to ask you to help me. Have you ever confessed that? Have you ever asked the Lord to help you in your prayer? Because if you haven't, I would highly recommend starting your prayers off with that. Never use your weakness, your lack of knowledge, as an excuse not to pray. Yes, your prayers might be stuttering and stammering. They might be weak and feeble. But you need to remember two things. Christ purchased your privilege and he wants you there. And two... The Spirit helps me pray. I have the Spirit of God. Verse 26, He not only helps me pray, He not only counters my deficiencies, verse 26 again, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now we have a little controversy here we have to deal with. Some have read the final words, groanings too deep for words, and they have concluded that this is a form of speaking in tongues. That this is a private prayer language or an ecstatic gibberish. But that does not fit the context here. That does not fit with what Paul is saying. First, tongues, whether you're talking about Acts 2 kind of tongues, or you're talking about the more modern version, that's an ecstatic gibberish, those are actual words. Kind of. They're audible. Here, he says this is without words. This is not audible groanings. This isn't a language at all. Secondly, Paul does not say that the Spirit intercedes through you. When a person speaks in tongues, let's assume it's the Acts 2 version of tongues, and it's a real language, it's the Spirit speaking through the person. That's how they're able to speak a language they they do not know. But here, the intercession is not, we're going to intercede together. The Spirit helping you is done together. The Spirit interceding is the Spirit's work. These groanings are groanings which cannot be expressed. You can't say them. So the Spirit says them. To intercede means to plead for, to plead on behalf of another person. When you intercede with some, for someone in prayer, what do you do? You go to the Lord in prayer and you ask God to do things for or with that person. Let's say you're praying for someone to come to saving faith and salvation. That's what the Spirit does here. He intercedes for you while you are praying. And so he helps you overcome your weaknesses in prayer. And at the same time, he's interceding on your behalf. He's pleading with God for you. And he's pleading with groanings too deep for words. The word here for groaning refers to an involuntary expression of a great sigh. It's when you're trying to work on something that's so hard, and you have no more options, and so you do this. Those are the things that the Spirit is interceding for you on. The things that your limitations prevent you from praying for. Here's the idea. When you go to pray and you're submitting your petitions and your requests, the Spirit joins with you. And He compensates for your deficiencies. He compensates for your weakness. He helps you to focus. He helps bring to mind Scripture that would help be helpful to you. But then the Spirit also joins with you in prayer. And he intercedes on your behalf. He pleads with God for you. And he prays for all those things that you can't pray for, that you don't know about, that you can't express. And he prays according to his perfect knowledge. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about your situation. He knows everything that's going on in your heart. He knows even the things that you do not know and you cannot express. He knows them perfectly. He knows how they'll work out and he prays them for you. And Paul says that, Romans eight twenty seven. and he who searches the heart, and he searches your heart, he knows what's in your heart, he knows what you want to say and he knows what you need to say. Psalm uh, 38, verse 9, he says, Lord, all my desire is before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. There's nothing hidden from him. There's no part of any person's life that is hidden. Hebrews 4, verse 13, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows everything. And he uses that knowledge to intercede with the Father, asking him for all that you need. He prays for your fears your worries, your doubts, your concerns. He addresses them with the Father. He prays about your sin. Everything hidden in your heart. And he knows something else. He doesn't just know what's in your heart. He doesn't just know what you need. Look at verse 27 again. And knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He knows the mind of the Spirit, he knows the mind of God, and he knows the will of God. He knows the will of God for each and every person, for every life, in every moment. He knows the will of God for the entire world. And I think this might be an encouragement because we've all gone to the Lord and we've prayed for something that we thought would certainly be in his will. I'll, I'll give you this example. Friend or family members in the hospital, and the doctors say the prognosis is not good, and you begin praying earnestly, Lord, please save them. Please keep them alive. Please don't let them go. Please, please, please. And you come up with a lot of good reasons why this person should stick around. And then you get the phone call. The Lord's taking him home. And you're wondering, why in the world did he not answer my prayer? I thought God answers prayer. He did. He knows the perfect will of God. And the Spirit prayed for the perfect will of God. And that person received exactly what God wanted them to receive. They got the life they were supposed to have. They lived the perfect amount of time. And God answered the prayer of the Spirit. God always answers prayer. Sometimes it's the prayer we think is right for us. But it's always the prayer that is according to His will. And either I'm going to pray you're going to pray it, or the Holy Spirit is going to pray it for us. Believer, when you go to pray... You don't need to have eloquent prayers. You don't need to add words. Just try to make it sound good. And you may often feel that you can't say everything that you should say, but you just remember, the Bible says you are weak. Your prayers are like the feeble, broken, stuttering, stammering, babbling of a two-year-old. And just like when your two-year-old comes up to you and babbles their little request to you, you look on that two-year-old with compassion, with mercy. If the words are mispronounced, what do you do? You translate. If the sentences are broken and the words are out of order, you fill in the gaps, you put it in order so it makes sense. And you do that because you love the child and you want to meet their needs. You want to meet their desires. And you recognize they're only two. They're still learning. So I can endure the broken language. Now, here's the question. If you, being evil, being a sinner, can show that kind of love and mercy to a child, if you can provide that kind of help and assistance to your child when they come to you in need, how much more will the Spirit intercede and plead on your behalf and help you when you are stuttering and stammering through prayer? Your weaknesses should never keep you out of the prayer closet. Never. Because this verse, these two verses, Romans 8, 26 and 27, says that the Spirit compensates for your weaknesses, He overcomes them, and He intercedes for you. Robert Mounts, the commentator, said, No passage of Scripture provides greater encouragement for prayer. The Spirit comes to the aid of believers baffled by the perplexity of prayer and takes their concerns to God with an intensity far greater than we could ever imagine. Our groans become his as he intercedes on our behalf. That should be very encouraging. So be encouraged. Go to the prayer closet. Spend some more time in prayer and let the Spirit help you through it and let him intercede on your behalf and be confident that God has heard your prayers and the Spirit has perfected your prayers and overcome your weaknesses and whatever you couldn't say, the Spirit said it for you. And Christ, purchase your privilege, and God is pleased to hear. And not only is he pleased to hear, but that brings us to our third encouragement to pray. The Father answers prayer. He is pleased to answer prayer. Why? Well, that takes us back to the first one, because Christ purchased your privilege. This is the last one on the list because it's the logical conclusion of the first two. Your prayers are pleasing to God because of what Christ has done for you, because Christ has made you perfect and acceptable to a holy God. He answers your prayers because the Spirit intercedes, and the Spirit makes your prayers perfect before Him. And the Spirit prays the perfect will of the Father. But it's also that the Father answers prayers because the Father is willing. That's why He calls Himself your Father, It's to put him on terms that we can all understand, that we can all connect with. We all have fathers, and many of you have children. And so you understand the role of a parent. And how hard it would be to turn your child away when they came and said, Mommy, Daddy, can I have a glass of water? Would you turn to them and say, No, get away from me. But that's how we think of God sometimes. God wouldn't answer this prayer. God doesn't do that. That's not what the Bible says about God. And this is evidenced by the repeated commands throughout Scripture, the repeated statements throughout Scripture encouraging you to trust that the Father answers prayer. Matthew 7, starting in verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Broad, open, promise i answer prayer ask for it matthew 21 22. and all things you ask in prayer believing you will receive and in fact in james when he's talking about why people don't get what they don't what they want why you don't get your get what you're asking for he says you do not have because you do not ask The reason you're missing something is because you're not asking for it. And so the question is, what are your needs right now? What is it that you need today? Are you hurting financially? Ask. Struggling with a sin? Ask. Needing some comfort? Ask. Recovering from a sickness? Ask. You want your marriage to improve? Ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Don't blame God. Don't blame God because something's missing, that you don't have what you need, or you're not enjoying what you have. Don't blame God for it. You didn't ask. You're not even willing to ask. Well, does that mean I can ask for a new Lamborghini? and God will give it to me? I mean, that's what the people on television these days say. Well, here's my question for that. Um, do you need a Lamborghini or is that your sinful heart talking? Are you asking God to provide for your needs or are you asking him to indulge in your greed? Jesus said in John fifteen sixteen that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. To ask in the name of Jesus is not to take all of my greedy, sinful desires, throw them up to God in prayer, and then tack on at the end of the prayer in Jesus' name. And somehow all of my sinful desires have now become righteous because I put it in Jesus' name. That's not what it means. God is not a genie in a lamp. Remember the movie Aladdin? I grew up on that movie. He rubs the lamp, the genie comes out. The first thing he asks for, help me deceive somebody else. That is not God. He's not here to indulge your sin in prayer. Just as a loving parent would never give something that is hurtful to their children, the Father will not give you wealth if it's going to destroy your soul. I firmly believe God didn't let me be rich because it would have destroyed my soul. Jesus says he gives good things to his children. Matthew 7 again, Matthew 7 verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? The child goes to the father and says, I'm hungry. Can I have some bread? And the father's like, here's a rock. You wouldn't do that. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Can I have some fish? Here's a rattlesnake. And yet, that's how sometimes we think of God. That he's, he's mean and spiteful, that he'll give us something that's hurtful to us. No loving earthly father would ever do that. But if that's true of you as a sinner, how much more is it true of God? Matthew 7 verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Are you lacking something today? Is there something that you need? Is there something that you really want? You do not have because you do not ask. And if it's something that you want, just be honest about it. Lord, this is something I would really like. But I'm going to let you decide on whether I should have it or not, if it's good for me or not. And then you trust that the Spirit's going to pray the perfect will of God for your life. And you'd be satisfied with what he gives. Well, pastor, I already tried that. I prayed that God would deliver me from this one particular sin and he didn't do it. Well, there's an easy solution to that. Keep asking. Go back and ask again. Keep confidently entering into his presence and pleading with him that he would do it. Plead the promises. I wish I had time to tell you more about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this, when you go into prayer, you need to be a lawyer. You need to pray like a lawyer argues in a courtroom. And you need to go to your father and you need to submit ordered arguments. That's actually the title of his sermon. Ordered arguments. And you need to bring all the evidence from Scripture as to why God should answer your prayer. And when you go to him and you say, Lord, I'm struggling with this sin. Is it not your will that I be sanctified? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. You're the one who said I should live a life pleasing to you. You're the one who said I should turn from every sin. And here I am struggling with this sin. Will you not help me and deliver me from this? And you keep going back over and over and over and over again. Many times we don't get what we're asking for just because we stop pleading. We stop asking. We're convinced that God doesn't want an answer. And we begin to begin to doubt God. And doubt starts creeping in. We start saying, well, you know, I guess God just doesn't want to give me what I'm asking for. It must not be His will. James 1 says that when you ask, you need to ask without doubting. For the one who doubts ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And this is where Spurgeon's little argument is so good. You want to go to the Lord as a lawyer, not because you need to convince God of something. God knows what he wants. God knows his perfect will. You go to him with all those arguments because those arguments convince you that it is the will of God for your life. Because your arguments are founded here in his will. That is the cure to doubt. Pray scripture. Well... Pastor, won't he get tired of me? Won't he be annoyed because I keep bugging him over and over and over again? Turn over to Luke 11. I want you to see this one. This is Luke 11. We'll be starting in verse 5. Luke 11, verse 5. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Verse 7. And from inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot give you anything. This is how we often view God. God's comfortable where he is. He doesn't want to hear from me anymore. I just need to stop. Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Jesus says, look, You got a friend and you're asking them for something? If you just bug them enough, they'll give you what you're asking for just to get you to leave them alone. Keep going back. Don't give up. Keep asking. And then he connects that to prayer, verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. There's that open end promise again. Just keep asking. Keep going back back. How was your prayer life this morning? Have you been trusting in Christ or have you been looking to your own work as the basis for your prayer life? Have you been confidently entering into God's presence knowing that, you're, that Christ has purchased your privilege, that He has given you access Have you been trusting in the Holy Spirit that he will aid you in your prayer, that he is interceding for you and that you can trust that he will make up for all of your deficiencies in prayer? Or have you been looking to yourself saying, well, I need to do better or I can't go pray? Or have you just put limitations on what the Father is willing to do and said there's no point in me praying for this because the Father just won't answer me? Remember these three encouragements as you go through this week. Christ has purchased your privilege, the Spirit helps you in prayer, and the Father answers prayer. Let's try to do that this week. Let's go to Him in prayer now. Father, we we thank You so much. We thank You that You are merciful, that You are loving and kind, that You desire us to come into Your presence, that You have made a way for us to come to You, that You have given us a way to commune and to fellowship with You in prayer, that we don't have to worry about our performance, that Christ has paid for it all, that you've provided your Spirit to aid us and help us and to intercede for us in the perfect will of God. And Father, we're so thankful that you answer prayer, that you are mercy, merciful and loving, and that you give to those who ask. And so we ask that you would help us this week. And as we go forward, that we would be marked by prayer, that we would be encouraged to spend more time That we would spend more time in your presence pleading the promises of God for ourselves, for our family members, for our friends, and for our local body, the church. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.